0: organizational effectiveness. This is a podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance, not just for themselves, but for the common good as well. I'm your host Charles Chandler. Today we're at episode number 115 and I'm calling it Anyone Can Lead Change. In this episode, I'm joined by Adam Bross, an author, consultant and university professor who lives in San Francisco, California. He focuses on change, innovation, and new forms of leadership. We talk about his recent book, Leading Change at Work, which offers a unique approach to bringing about change. And I'm now joined by Adam Bross from the Bay Area of California. How are you doing,
1: Adam? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Charles. This is a awesome. great
0: pleasure to have you today. So you've written a, a book called Leading Change at Work. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to write that book.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I I was uh, I was teaching uh, my students. So I'm a, a college professor at a small innovative college called Make School. And uh, in in the past, I've been a software engineer and an entrepreneur and a consultant. And uh, I was teaching my students, and they asked, you know, hey, how do I like once I get into a company if I want to like change things or do things? How should I? What should I do? And I and I had this system that I had already developed and kind of used on my own when I was a consultant or when I was kind of managing a lot of people and are working inside of a larger organization. And, and I was teaching it and my colleagues were listening in on my lesson and they said, Oh my God, that that's really cool. We've never heard that before. You should write that up into a blog post. And so I was like, okay, so I'll write that up. So, and, and so I wrote it up into a blog post and then it got a bit of traction. It got a few thousand views and people were commenting on it and saying, this is really great. And a, and a good friend of mine, uh, uh, Dan Morris, who's also a, a writer, uh, uh, he was like, you should really write this into like a full book. I think this really merits uh, writing a full book about it. So I thought, I thought that's so cool that, that, you know, people are really liking it and sort of thinking the idea is cool. So I'll, so I'll write it up. So I got that support from kind of like where I work and from my community uh, to, to suggest doing it, but it really kind of turns. I think the most con- kind of the more conventional or the way the default way people think, change should happen, it kind of turns that on its ear and it has a bunch of kind of benefits that um, that I think people really like. And, and I've gotten some warm reception from the book too. So I think people do like it.
0: Yeah. I was in reading the book, uh, it was kind of a guerrilla strategy for change, I think in some ways, but tell us a little bit about the normal change strategies and how they go wrong. Uh, that's part one
1: of your book. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think there's a number of, there's, there's no one way to do change, right? And, and there's a lot of different ways people uh, try to fix it uh, and do that well. Um, but I think the most standard, I mean, maybe unfortunately, but this is, I think, widely the way change happens is, you know, some executives who have a lot of perspective and have a lot of responsibility will come up with kind of the next phase, the next sort of quarters uh, change that's going to happen. And, and then that's sort of promulgated from on high and, and the rest of the company has to kind of conform to what maybe a leader or a sort of executive or a CEO or a founder kind of says to do. And, and, and that's the way most change happens. And, and, and God bless them. It it, it works some of the time and it doesn't work other parts of the time. Uh, but there's a lot of frictions to that, especially because uh, people have to kind of hear that and then believe it. And it might not align with their experience on the ground as kind of foot soldiers, you know, kind of in the trenches of day to day work, they might kind of hear what those executives or CEOs are saying and say, you know, I don't really, I don't really, that doesn't really vibe with me. And then, and then, and now you're kind of at odds and the implementation now is gonna be uh, imperfect. And then, and that's gonna be a problem. And then also, I think sometimes the, the the C-suite, the kind of strategy top level C-suite actually is a little out of step with like what customers want or what the day-to-day is. Uh, and so it's it's kind of creates a lot of risk, I think. And so instead uh, uh, what I'm suggesting is more what you called? Yeah, would you call the guerrilla strategy? Which actually, the original t- t- title of the book was going to be guerrilla innovation. But then I, I didn't, I didn't want it to use like military language, so I changed it, and I, I wanted it to be a little more positive. But yeah, so I was always calling it guerrilla innovation in my head um, until I got the the more positive title, leading change at work. But yeah, so I suggest a more kind of bottom up strategy, or a kind of a kind of a uh, kind of wisdom of the crowd kind of strategy. Where, where people develop ideas and build consensus out of out of kind of the middle of the company. So and that and that kind of reverses the standard way of like, you know, CEOs going off to an offsite and then kind of coming back and sort of haloing in uh, what the strategy or what the change is going to be for the next uh, quarter or the next year.
0: Yeah. So um, we'll get into your, your view of it in a little bit. But, um, you know, most companies, I guess, hire consultants. Um, and sort of ignore their internal voice. That's another
1: strategy, yeah. <laughs> uh, why,
0: why, sh- why, should, uh, yep. why should companies lead change at all? I mean, is it just out of frustration that, that change needs to happen, or is it a change of objectives, or what, what is the typical um, yeah. scenario for yep. making change uh, necessary?
1: Well, I mean, change, I mean, I think all of us have seen, especially in the last, I mean, Jesus, I mean, especially with COVID and, and who knows, all these things are just, it's just one thing after the next these days, but change is inevitable, right? Change in tastes, change in technology is obviously we see these changes in technology just every few years, changes in history. I mean, we're seeing changes in politics. We're seeing all these crazy changes and companies have to respond to that. They have to, they have to stay, we, everyone knows that we have to stay super agile. We have to be very responsive. To 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 the things that are happening, and the way consumer you know consumers are changing, our customers are changing. So change is inevitable. The question is, how are you going to change well? And uh, I think I think what we see, I think maybe the you you brought up consultants, and I I don't want to just totally knock consultants. You know, I have a lot of friends who are consultants. Consultants are can be helpful, but I think I think the the danger is. Consultants are are kind of out of like I said there's a there's a risk of consultants being kind of out of touch or out of step with the 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 changes that need that really could happen that could really have a a really positive effect on a company. Uh, A lot of times consultants are really just looking at what worked for some other company in a similar situation and then just kind of grafting that solution onto your situation. But every company's really different, you know, and so it's hard to do that that kind of copy paste. Uh, kind of graft from another salute from another company just if you kind of blur your eyes and you say oh these companies are similar because they're the same size or something it doesn't really work that way but if you grow change from inside your company like I'm suggesting with this piecemeal consensus strategy, then your solutions will be tailored exactly exactly to the situation of your company it'll be tailored exactly to the anatomy of your company and that doesn't mean there's not Uh, I'm not, I'm not one of these people who are suggesting, you know, oh, just get rid of all authority and just have it be everything, everybody kind of in the soup together. Uh, uh, no, no, no hierarchy, no, no rules. I'm actually, I'm actually in favor of strong leadership, strong hierarchy, you know, responsibilities going up as you go up a ladder of kind of authority. But, but, but what I'm talking about is the strategy by which you gather new ideas out of that hierarchy, out of that company. Um, and how those ideas can percolate all the way to the top very rapidly uh, if you if you use the right um, the right uh, sort of policies. So so I'm not suggesting a revolutionary uh, change actually, which is I think is kind of cool because you don't have to just completely you know burn the house down in order to save in order to save it. You you can actually just keep. I think companies more often than not can keep the structures they have in place, but add a few key policies to enable. That kind of innovation and change to come out of of uh, of uh, their people.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have in most companies, of course, an org chart, a typical hierarchy of um, you know the guy at the top, and then it kind of filters down to the vice presidents and uh, the mid management and the lower levels, and that's certainly a you know a pathway to make things happen from the top, at least. Uh, but it doesn't really uh, work very well coming back the other way from the bottom. And I think what you're suggesting uh, in part two of the book about the secret structure of change is to use the informal social structures, the informal connections um, uh, between people. And it's, it's kind of an over right. and up or over and down kind of thing where you use portions of the hierarchy. Yep. Yep. Uh, but uh, you're, you're going around and about uh, through more of an informal route. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, that secret structure uh, right. that you're talking about there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So in the, in the 90s, uh, when social networks, I mean, I think, I think it kind of went along in step with the emergence of the internet. There, there was the emergence of the study of social networks. And obviously, now we have these very robust social networks of Facebook and et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but even in the nineties, people were studying social networks that just meant networks of people that maybe only met face to face and, 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 and a, and a wonderful researcher out of Babson, uh, wrote a book on this in the nineties. And I think it's still very, a seminal text in this, which is, he showed that in business in businesses, uh, the social networks actually can have more influence than the formal hierarchical network. Uh, That is kind of, you know, managers and and reports and and whatnot. So just the fact that people know each other, and they're not related in any way based on the org chart, they have an informal relationship, that actually informal network can can actually have the, the, the levers of power can actually flow through that informal network. In some ways, it's not the same kind of power. So it doesn't, it's not exactly the same, but power can really flow through those networks at the same time as power is flowing through the hierarchy. And, um, uh, I just, just, uh, when I was researching this topic, so my original insight was just, Hey, if instead of ask, don't ask your manager for permission, that was kind of my initial insight. Hey, every time I ask my manager for permission to do some change, they just kind of try to get me back kind of onto my job. They try to get me kind of back in the box, you know, say, keep doing your work. Stop coming up with all these crazy ideas. So my first insight was just like, hey, just not not ignore your manager. Your manager is great. You know, you got to have a great relationship with your manager, but maybe they're not the person to go talk to, you know, and I started to realize that it's better for me to go and talk to my peers, maybe even my peers outside of my department. Uh, and kind of come up and kind of share cool ideas with them and new ideas for change with them and i started to see out of that this kind of the ideas would start to grow out of this kind of connections with with my peers and that was my initial just sort of insight that i just sort of figured out independently but then i went when i was writing the book and really researched well why is that working so well why does that work so well and i found this this lovely research that's been was done in the 90s and then has been redone uh, all the way through until now, there's, there's a lot of go- going on now in terms of the social networks inside of companies, um, in terms of research. And so I found that actually those, so that's really the, the power that, that this piecemeal consensus strategy is, is, is operating on. That's the kind of railway that the cars, the real cars are running on is actually the social network connections rather than the company's hierarchical um, org chart, the kind of formal relationships.
0: Yeah, I think there seems to be more trust in the informal network as people build up social capital through um, personal connections there. And as you say, a lot of the flow can, uh, can be strong there, even stronger than from the typical um, uh, formal hierarchy. So you're talking about the power of piecemeal consensus. Um, and I think you also give it a, a name like nimawashi, which is a Japanese term, which is difficult to directly chan- translate. Yep. But tell us a little bit about uh, uh, nimawashi and preparing and, um, yeah. the roots, I guess it is.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah, nimawashi is, so there, we, we all are very familiar or many of us who are, are involved with agile or lean or scrum, we know words like kaizen and kanban which are very popular uh, lean words. But it turns out that there's actually 14 of these, a, a, at least 14 uh, of these outlined in the book, The Toyota Way, which was kind of one of the first uh, times in the 90s that we got the the lean, uh, the kind of Toyota manufacturing words brought into the American business world and the cons- consulting world, especially the management world. And one of these words is nimawashi. So it's it's really a, a, a peer like a sibling to Kaizen and Kanban and, 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 um, these other lean words. But it's one that maybe people don't really know very well and they haven't really put into place. And I think really until my book, I'll kind of toot my own horn and say that until my, until this book, until Leading Change at Work, it's really been misunderstood and mistranslated. Um, because it's generally translated just as consensus. Um, and I think when we think about consensus, a lot of us have and i and i am included in this have a very rosy view of consensus right we think of everyone kind of sitting together and getting on the same page and kind of holding hands and maybe singing kumbaya a little bit and we sort of think ah consensus but then we immediately think oh but that's so hard and people are always fighting with each other and it's so hard to get everyone on the same page and you know you go you show up to a meeting and you have 10 people and you have 12 ideas on the table right like it's really hard To get to that consensus when we're all sitting in a room. So when we hear the word nimawashi and people translate it as consensus, maybe I think the the initial thought or the way the reason why it's been kind of left behind is we think oh that's just a Japanese cultural artifact. We think oh Japanese people are capable of doing that because they're very harmonious and polite and you know they have these cultural uh, abilities that maybe we don't have. You know in America we're more independent. We're fighting with each other. I don't know. Um, and I think that's kind of where people tacitly, I've never read anyone say this, but I think tacitly that's kind of the assumption is, oh, that's a piece of sort of Japanese culture that's not gonna translate. Even if Kaizen does, Nimawashi doesn't. So we're just gonna leave Nimawashi behind. But I think it's misunderstood what it actually is. And when, and when, it's, when it's translated properly, uh, which is my translation is piecemeal consensus. And that means having a one-on-one conversation with one person, Getting on the same page with them, then having a one-on-one conversation with another person. And these don't have to be long conversations. You know, five, 15 minutes is plenty usually, but you get it. You get just on the same page and you move to the next person, same page. And as you talk to these one-on-one people, your recommendation changes. The idea changes to with the information that you're getting from these people from, from this kind of network you're developing. And as you do that, you get everyone on the same page. But it doesn't have to be everyone in a meeting sitting there and everyone kind of looking at each other in the eye and just, and saying yes, we all agree. Instead, the, the the consensus is built one by one, just in these little brief meetings. And and um and when you do it that way, it works really well. And you can build consensus very rapidly, extremely rapidly. And you'll be surprised, I think, anyone trying it will be surprised with the um. The strength of that consensus and the rapidity at which it, it develops uh, across a company. So, yeah. So, Nimowashi yep. is this idea of yeah piecemeal consensus taken from the lean st- the lean manufacturing realm.
0: Yeah, and the uh, sort of subject of these little meetings, um, which I which I liked in your uh, section there, was about S bar, uh, which comes out of medical. Um, uh, doctors speak, you could say, um, where doctors after they see a patient, they write up the situation, the background, the assessment, and the recommendation, which is SBAR. So that avoids the sort of death by powerPoint uh, in, in very detailed meetings and it, it allows you to um, you know, have people read what what the, um, what the proposal is. And then uh, work through it. Uh, tell us a little bit mo- a little bit more about that side of it.
1: Sure. Yeah. So people are pretty used to, I think, or have heard about decision documents. You know, I think that's a pretty common idea. Like, oh, we have to make a decision, so we should make a decision document. Um, so I I recommend uh, in the book. I mean, there's a lot of flavors of decision documents, and there's no reason necessarily to use mine, I guess. But I but I recommend as a very lightweight decision document um for whenever you're developing a kind of change like this, just so that something is written down so there's some common kind of thread that get, gets held throughout, is to write a very simple uh what I call an S bar, which which is from healthcare. I used to work in healthcare and have dot family members who are doctors and stuff. Um so the S bar is essentially simply situation background uh sorry about that. Situation background assessment recommendation. And it's, it's the way doctors have been making decisions about patients for years. And and it actually I think it works pretty well as a lightweight way to keep track of of kind of a change that you're you're, you're going person to person, you're building that consensus. And every time you talk to someone that that bar changes a little bit, maybe a new recommendation option is added, or maybe the background gets a little more fleshed out, or maybe the assessment, which is kind of like data, the data gets a little richer, the analysis there gets a little richer. So that kind of becomes where everyone's contributing to, but it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing. The way I've used it in a few times in the past, the way I developed it was I was working at Epic, which is a healthcare software company, and I I, uh, I and a friend, and I tell the story in the book, but I and a friend Nico were were working together, and we weren't in the same team at all. We weren't even in the same department, but we were friends, and we were chatting. We would have these idea jams. Hey, how can we make the company better? You know, how can we do better? And we came up with this cool idea to create a, we- a question and answer website, so like a, a Stack Overflow, if, if if listeners are aware, StackOverflow.com. We were going to make a Stack Overflow for consulting questions to simplify finding the answers to these consulting questions that we heard every day. Like I was one of the consultants, I heard these questions again and again and again. Why can't there just be a platform where there, you know, the best answer is is set there, and people can vote and people can comment, and you know just like Stack Overflow. So we wanted to build this thing. And the first thing we did was we went and asked permission from everyone. And we just got, we got yeses, we got nos, but we got really the runaround. So even if we got a yes, it was always like, yes, but you have to do these 25 things before you can really make something real. And we, we, we did that for six months. We went around always asking permission. Eventually, we just kind of gave up with asking people's permission and doing these long lists of things that people asked. And we just put it up on a browser, you know, we just put it up on a server and we just showed it to people and people started signing up for it. And we got the whole company signed up for it. Within another six months, we had 95% of people had an account and and, and 30 or 40% of people were using it every day. So, so, and, and we were then, uh, you know, we were then major leaders in the company started to talk about how this was such a great thing. And they didn't even know we'd made it. No, no one even really ever realized that we were the people who made it? It just completely came out of uh, out of this collaboration, and I think it really is kind of a it was a vision of how ama- of how great change could happen, um, and so that that's kind of the story I tell in the book of kind of the origin story, and then I did this research and I looked and found all about Nemowashi and I found uh, you know this research into social networks and that that kind of fleshes out the idea so that you really it really has a grounding. Um, in in research and a grounding in in the past, so yeah, that was that was Beetlejuice. We called we call I called the software Beetlejuice, and everyone said, oh, "What a terrible name!" <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I liked it. Not Beetlejuice the um, the creepy movie from the '80s. It was Beetlejuice the shoulder of Orion. So yeah,
0: the constellation, the, <laughs> the
1: the 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 pulsar or quasar that's the shoulder of Orion.
0: Yeah, well, there's lots of good examples uh, in the book. In part three, you talk about building a culture of change leadership, and part of that is about balancing the power of management, in other words, to tone down management a little bit so that not everything is coming from the top, but management is is trying to also use the informal networks to bring change from the bottom. Tell us a little bit more about that approach.
1: Yeah. well. You know when you when you realize the power of this piecemeal consensus process uh you might realize it from the like you might think oh well that's a good way for things to kind of come up from the middle or the bottom of the company out to the up to the top or up to the, the higher responsibility but then you start to think wait is this the way things come out of the, the middle or the bottom of the company or is this the way all new ideas should be developed in a company and and my analysis And my recommendation is that it actually is the way all new ideas should be suggested to the company, because when, when someone at the very top kind of, you know, goes in and, and sits in a, in the tower for, for, for a few weeks, and then comes out with stone tablets, you know, half the people in the room kind of doubt the stone tablets, you know, and the other half might say, Oh, they're great. Or yeah, we're, we're on board, but there's a lot of doubt and there's a lot of misunderstanding. Whereas if you develop that through a piecemeal consensus process, even if you're the CEO, if you say, Hey, let's have some, I'm going to go have some one-on-ones with not even just only VPs. I'm going to go have some one-on-ones with some frontline, you know, salespeople, some frontline consumer, you know, customer support people, some frontline designers or engineers that then that CEO will have a really clear sense of what is at stake and what's going on. And, and when they, and when they come up with new ideas, even major, strategy changes not only will they have a really clear sense of exactly what's going on on the day to day but they'll have they'll have buy-in from all those people they talk to and those people will go to their teams and develop buy-in and and i can i tell a few of the stories from google where i think google without knowing the word Nimowashi, i think sergey brin and, and and uh and um page larry page just intuited that this would be better they intuited that it would be better if Changes happen this way through a piecemeal uh, consensus process. And so if you look at the early days of Google, not so much now, they've kind of become a more, uh, you know, maybe more traditional company. But, but back in the day, they had 20% time, which I think opened up the time to have these kind of one-on-one conversations and kind of, imp- kind of gave people the impulse or the impetus to be change makers and leading change. Uh, they also had a weird rule that I think is, I, I've never heard of at another company, which is where managers can't couldn't tell engineers what to work on. So so engineers had to be recruited, they had to be persuaded to work on a project. And and because of that, if you, if you think about it, that means projects engineers didn't like never got built. You know, in a way, that's like a perfect piecemeal consensus strategy is, is to make it so people really have to kind of vote with their feet And vote with their their work time to to do projects that they really believe in and there's consensus around uh so that's just two strategies i think i talk about three or four policies that they had in place that that really supported a a piecemeal consensus method of change at google the last chapter of the book is about amazon which i think amazon doesn't do exactly nimawashi but they have this really interesting bottom-up strategy where they use these six-page reports and and everyone writes these six-page reports and then the six-page reports go up to their managers. The manager reads all the six-page reports and they write their own six-page report. And then that goes up to their manager. And these 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 ideas can kind of come up through the whole company. And, and I think that's a, a pretty interesting kind of mechanical way of doing Nemoashi, rather than having a a kind of more informal kind of, oh, let's have let's have these little short meetings um, with, with S-Bars kind of mushrooming up. Instead, they have a really like a cyclical, you know, everybody writes a six-page report. Kind of process but but i think the idea is the same i, I think it's still Nimowashi. it's just a different implementation of Nimowashi.
0: well also uh you you get into some of the silicon valley uh, firms uh like pixar and of course you mentioned uh amazon and and google i think some companies have been uh, playing around with the structure of their headquarters to uh, facilitate change in a way or facilitate Conversations, informal conversations. I think you mentioned Pixar as having an open atrium that um, mm-hmm. um, you know, as as people stand in line for lunch, uh, they can they can informally um, have some conversations. Also, perhaps the the restrooms were mm-hmm. only uh, uh, surrounding the the atrium, so that uh, that was another way that people came in in uh, uh, contact with each other more frequently. So. Talk to us a yeah. little bit about the success with some of those uh, types of approaches uh, that you see in in Silicon yeah. Valley, where you are.
1: Yeah, you. I think um, you know. I, I I'm definitely in San Francisco, and a lot of my friends and and colleagues work at these software companies, and, and these software companies are in the news a lot and stuff. So I I do focus on those stories, but but I think you can apply Nimowashi to a lot of different companies. And actually, I have a really good chapter in the book about a woman who works in, uh, with, with, uh, in auto, in, in car manufacturing and, and, and car parts. And, and, and sh- I worked with her to, to actually Im- use Nimawashi to make a big change inside of her company. Uh, and she actually was then promoted to be one of the heads of innovation at her company. It's all, all through the work that we did together, which was pretty great. But I, I just want to highlight that, you know, it's not just a totally a software thing. It, it can really be used in, and I was doing it in healthcare. I mean, technically, was a healthcare software company, but it was, we were interfacing directly with hospitals and, and you can do, I did the nimawashi there in the hospitals as well to drive change. But um, I think, I think maybe one of the, one of the interesting stories around this is, um, you know, uh, free lunch. You know, I think that's a kind of classic thing that Google, I think was really the leader on, or at least I have the perception of them being kind of the leader on. And, and then it was implemented across almost all software companies, all these innovative companies have Free lunch. Um, and I, and I think people think of it generally as, oh, it's a perk. It's a perk. Oh, it's just this perk. And other people, I think more cynical commentators said things like, it's to keep people at work. It's to keep people at their desks working, you know? Oh, they get a free lunch. That's to keep them there. They don't go out and have lunch, right? But actually, I think both, both of those are, I think, missing the actual underlying cool thing about free lunches and, and actually practical, impl- you know, reason to have free, free lunch which is that actually it doesn't keep you at your desk. You, you get up from your desk and you walk to the cafeteria and there's only like one cafeteria, you know, for hundreds of people, right? If not thousands of people, they're gonna be big cafeterias. And when you go to the cafeteria, as you're walking there, you walk with other people from all different departments and other people, right? And then when you get there, you're standing in line at the different lines and you kind of bump into people and make connections and friends. And then you sit down at a table and there are four or five people there you don't know and you get to know them. And then, you know, inevitably you talk about your jobs and you talk about that client and you talk about, and and by doing that, you actually are gonna start developing ideas and building consensus around those ideas. So so the free lunch is actually, I think a, a beautiful implementation of Nemowashi. just a wonderful part of a company that wants to build more of a culture of innovation uh, can can offer something like, if not a free lunch every day, then maybe a free lunch once a week uh and 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 have that be a social time where people can bump into people from teams maybe people they don't know and build these informal connections that's laying the that's laying the rail for then later innovation networks being able to form along those informal lines so that's an example i think of of how the, the as you said the last part of the book is really how do we really implement a nimoashi strategy it's not just a feel good thing and it's not just a kind of a kind of principle we emblazon on our hearts. It, it's actually can be built in by policy into a company and, and, and having something like a free lunch or, or, or ways for people to interact socially built into the day, built into the workday is a critical part, not just of having sort of happy, happy employees, but actually of, of driving these innovation networks.
0: Yeah. Well, also I know you're besides the book. Uh, you're involved in several innovative educational initiatives like uh, make school and uncollege tell us a little bit about how that fits in with everything else you're doing
1: sure yeah well i you know i think of myself i mean i i i I, uh i guess maybe my white whale is is i really believe in education you know i really believe education has the, the the well, this is how I explain it to some people. So a bunch of my friends, you know, they work in tech or they work in, they're entrepreneurs and they're like, and and the question there is, you know, what problem are you solving? Well, our company solves this problem. Our company solves that problem. You know, but I always like to say, well, I run a college, so I solve all problems because my students will go out and each one will solve a different problem. And, And I mean, that's maybe a bit grandiose, but I, but I like that. I like, I like that idea that education is really this kind of It's not just solving one problem, it's creating the solutions to all problems because people can get the skills to then go out and be able to solve a lot of problems. I I think I just, I just am very much of a, I'm a very um, diverse, I like to think about a lot of different ideas and have a lot going on. And being inside of a college helps that because each student that I'm working with has a different idea, my colleagues all have different creative ideas. And and it affords me a little more time. I'm not exactly like a tenured professor who has like a sabbatical every year or, or every few years, but I but I do have a little more time. I think uh, being living a life of the mind to then write the, write books and 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 uh, and uh, develop myself in other ways as well. So yeah, no, I think it's just it's lovely. It's it's wonderful. Um, and actually, my next book is about um, edu- more about education, and and that's coming out in the next in a couple months here. So. Okay.
0: Well, uh, we'll uh, look forward to that. Are there other things we haven't talked about that you'd like to leave us with as sure. we as we close out uh, this session?
1: Yeah. Just, um, just I'm really excited to be on your podcast. I really am excited about, uh, especially that it's organi- organizational effectiveness. Um, I think Nimowashi fits right into organizational effectiveness, and I'd love to hear more about it and, and have people adopt the piecemeal consensus as that translation. I think that really is right. And will really kind of open up a door for people. Uh, if people want to, 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 read the book, you know, it's called leading change at work. Uh, I have a bit.ly link set up. So it's bit.ly bit.ly slash leading change at work, all just hyphenated and you'll get right to the book. So that's kind of nice. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just excited to see people, uh, uh, you know, Implement more of these policies and changes and, and have people kind of wake up and realize, oh man, I can make changes at work and I don't have to be the boss and I don't have to be necessarily kind of a cutthroat operator or something or play office politics. You don't actually have to do either of those things. You can, you can do this really positive, relatively easy strategy. And, and I really, I really uh, swear by it. I really think people will be amazed at how effective it is. So I'm excited to work with people. If anyone wants to work with me, I think a dream in heaven would be if someone contacted me and said, I want to implement Nimawashi at my company as like the standard, as like the way we do innovation. And I would love to work with someone like that to build a, to, to build like an implementation plan to, to build that out and to train people. I think that would just be super exciting. So if anybody's interested in that and they read the book, please reach out to me and I, 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 I'd love to work on that.
0: Yeah, there may well be some. But I think it speaks to uh, the frustration that a lot of people have about their bosses and the sort of uh, rigid um, structure that they're facing. And uh, Nibawashi offers a sort of a backdoor approach to um, anybody can that anybody can uh, lead change. Uh, And I think I think it's a a very interesting and and innovative uh, way to think about it. So um, I'm glad uh, you were able to join us today, um, Adam, and uh, it's been great having you on.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Charles. This is great. I can't wait to, to share it around with more people.
0: Yeah, excellent. And uh, we'll have links to the uh, bitly thing you were talking about uh, on, the, on the show notes. And anything else you want to, uh, to add there, we can, we can uh, fit that in. And that's about it for today. Join us again next time, when we'll explore more stories about organizations and their performance, not just for themselves, but for the common good as well. You can check out all of our podcast episodes at our website, ageofoe.com. And I'm your host, Charles Chandler, saying so long for now.